Hello, friends. We are back with episode 138 of the Our Weekly Hobbits podcast. We did have a week off, but I think we'll have a pretty good reason why we had a week off as we get into the meat of this. But my name is Eric Nance, and it's so happy that you joined us today from wherever you're listening around the world. And of course, I will never do this podcast without my trusty right-hand sidekick and workshop instructor extraordinaire, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Eric. Still buzzing, coming off a posit comp. What an amazing experience it was. It was my first time being there in person in Chicago, and it was it was electric, to say the least. And I, I hope everybody else that attended uh, virtually or, or in person feels the, the same way, because it was a pretty cool experience. Yep, we're going to be expounding upon that quite a bit uh, very shortly here, but let's get our our little housekeeping bits out of the way because this week's issue was curated by Batul Almerzak, who had tremendous help from our fellow R-Wiki team members and contributors like you around the world. And this is a supersized edition of R-Wiki Highs because we have four highlights to talk about, but we, we're going to dive right into it. And yes, as Mike has already alluded to, our first highlight is going to be a mix of things because guess what? Mike and I were both at PositConf and we have a lot of thoughts to share as well as our first highlight coming from Jill McKay, who is a senior lecturer in veterinary science education at the Royal School of Veterinary Studies who attended the conference virtually, which is, I'm so glad they have that option. Um, but let's dive into our thoughts real quick. And you heard this tease quite a bit in episodes leading up to the conference, but Mike and I were quite busy in the outset because we taught a workshop about using Shiny in production and some of the various tools and techniques we learned along the way. It was a one-day workshop. We didn't go easy on the students. We kind of hit them with some really important concepts, but we think, given the feedback we've heard, that it was quite valuable to them. Um, but in the end, I think this workshop, um, I'm not going to mince words here, was definitely, from my standpoint, went a lot better than the one I did a couple years ago. But also, for anybody who wants to do this in the future, two days is a lot. So having a one-day workshop is very convenient, especially when you get to team up with somebody that knows the ins and outs of the same subject, which is what Mike and I did for this workshop. So I think it went really well. Of course, when you're in the moment, you have no idea always some challenges along the way, but I think we had some really good questions, really good engagement. It was literally not an empty seat in the house of that room, so to speak. I think we had over 80-ish attendees. Um, really gratifying to see everybody so enthusiastic about taking their shiny skills to the next level. And I dare say we had a pretty cool example app throughout uh, visualizing Lego brick data because that was that was a lot of fun to put together. But Mike, what did you think about our workshop experience? I thought it was an incredible experience. Obviously, it was a, a ton of work to get there, uh, but the payoff at the end of it and seeing the students really get uh, engaged and engrossed into the content that we had put together and, and sort of starting to see some of these concepts that we talked about all day in terms of building production grade shiny applications, starting to see those those click in their heads was was super rewarding and, and click on their computers was was really, really cool to see. So I, I feel like uh, we made some progress in uh, preaching the gospel of Gollum, <laughs> if nothing else. And uh, it, it was a great experience. Yeah, I echo those same sentiments. And again, the engagement we got from from the students was really, really helpful. 
And actually, the day before, Mike and I were TAs of David Grangin and Maya Ganz's workshop on, you know, design principles for Shiny Apps. And we learned a lot just being a TA on that one as well. So a bunch of Shiny Nirvana knowledge just hitting us in two days, um, teaching one and learning from another. But um, we definitely had some students that went to both. And I dare say they got a lot of things to look at now that they're back at their desk um, doing their Shiny App development. But that kind of leads me to, I'll kind of start with my favorite takeaways and such. Honestly, being able to talk to David Grangin and picking his brain on so many things technically, as well as just practically, I've never met him until now. And just like how Mike and I hadn't met in IRL until this very conference. So that was obviously a great, a great uh, win for us as well. Um, but yeah, David just blew me away with his knowledge and just a brilliant guy. And I felt like I was soaking it all in as, as every chance I could get. So I value all those conversations that we had after the workshops and then during breaks at the conference, we attended some of the same talks together, taking a lot of notes. And and I dare say he and I are both extremely excited. I dare say Mike will be excited about this as well. The biggest, um, I'll call announcement, ish talk that i attended was that now shiny live is available for r and yes i am super excited for this i was a little jealous of our friends in the python space of having shiny Live for python up the bat last year but now us r shiny developers we get to have that too already tried it out got it working on my home system with an example app but I see such immense potential for this. My head is still spinning thinking about it. But, uh, Mike, are you excited about that as I am? Yes, that was an incredible announcement. I, I was super uh, shocked. I, I guess not not shocked by that, but just super excited to see that that come out and see that we have that capability. Now, there's already been some POCs. I think you, you may be putting together uh, a little POC if I'm following uh, my GitHub news feed correctly. And, you know, like you said, having those conversations with David was was incredible to to meet him in person. I got to meet his family in person and get to know him personally. And he's he's just as nice uh, personally as he is skilled uh, professionally. So so that was really, really cool. Uh, also, getting to hear Maya talk about color and design was was really awesome because it opened up sort of that other side of the brain that sometimes I, I struggle to leverage when I'm knee deep into my shiny code with my hands on my keyboard and and uh fail to step back a little bit and and think about ux and think about design so that was really really impactful and then obviously joe chang coming in at the end of our workshop uh day and and talking to the students and thanking us for the work that we did was was just the cherry on top of the whole entire experience yeah, I was, I was thrilled that he could make that bit of a cameo there. But these are a lot of that workshop was directly inspired by one of his talks at a previous uh, RStudio conference. Um, I forget the exact year, but we can link to it in the show notes where he said, OK, now we've got some tooling available, but he only had an hour to talk about all that you know, speed through. We we dived into almost everything he talked about through that whole day. And yeah, without him. It's it's not just a cliche. None of this is possible by without the efforts of Joe Winston and the rest of the shiny team. Had great fun meeting uh, Carson Sievert again and Nick Strayer and and everybody on the shiny team. Lots of lots of great ideas that we were talking about. And speaking of great, a lot of the the keynotes at this conference were spectacular as well. 
sure, we didn't have huge announcements like a name change or other things like that. But what we did here was resonated with so many people. And this is also touched on in Joey's uh, blog post as well in our first highlight. Um, Kara Wu um, did a fantastic job talking about being, you know, serving as a data engineer and using R across her almost entire stack. Really inspiring. If you ever get pushback from people, say, in IT or other sectors of your respective organizations about, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not going to use R for that. It's just impossible. No, no, no. She proved the whole stack. It was straightforward, just with the right attention to detail, like any other framework, it's all possible. It was really inspiring and even has hints of life science uh, touches. So this is like the first keynote I think I can ever remember at this stage of a, at this, um, at this scale of a conference that had such life science vibes to it. And that was really gratifying to see. So a lot of us were in full force. Um, I caught up with a lot of our, our pharma organizers that attended in person, shared some great ideas, met people like Harvey Lieberman for the first time. He's He and I are like kindred spirits in a lot of the tech sectors we follow. Um, just some great conversations there. Had dinner with Mike Smith and his team for a bit. It was you know, really, really fun stuff. So the keynotes were amazing. Definitely recommend you check out those recordings as they're, as they're posted. And then another bit that uh, Julie uh, touches on is there's a lot of quartal magic happening and it was revealed at this conference. Um, Emo's talk about shiny or quartal theming was really amazing. And of course, the aforementioned shiny live can run in quartal docs via an extension. So like the possibilities of teaching with quartal and shiny are now amazingly um, right at our fingertips. So overall, wonderful experience. I have many more thoughts I could share. Maybe I'll do that in future future episodes, but probably the most rewarding on multiple levels of all the conferences I've been to that our studio now posit has run. This like was the one year to, it was like the intersection of everything for me. The personal, you know, gratification of being in the art community, being, you know, connected with our data science, you know, colleagues. And then my industry initiatives and open source, it all came together. And I don't remember ever that happening in one place. So overall, I'm still I'm still feeling the highs and trying to take a lot of that into my daily work. But if you if you have the means to make it next year in Seattle, I would highly recommend it. This is probably my favorite conference of the year by far. Definitely. It was probably one of the, my favorite conference that I've ever been to. So I'm going to uh, try to make that that trip out west to Seattle next year and uh, wish it was wish it was a little closer to the East Coast, but that's OK. I, uh, I think it's it's worth the trip for sure. Yeah, this will be the one year that it was in th- three hours of my home base. So I, I took advantage of it. But yeah, they will rotate every now and again. But yeah, I hope I hope dearly that you can make it again next year, too, because it was a lot of fun to team up with you on the workshop. And again, I'm, I said this to you personally in one of our our kind of hacking sessions we did late at night, but like the night before. But this workshop is definitely, it was not possible without you. So you deserve all the accolades that are coming your way too. So well, that is, that is too humble from you because I think the opposite is, is even more true that uh, <laughs> the amount of, the amount of time and effort that you put in to create that workshop uh, was, was, was incredible. And I think it really paid off for the students. 
Yeah, just uh, for those out there, if you look at the Git logs, yeah, you can you can have some fun meta analysis on the timestamps for that. I'm just saying, but I wasn't alone. I wasn't alone. There were definitely other workshop <laughs> instructors that were getting things down to the wire, but that's that's how we roll, right? So, again, great write up um, by Jilla here that we'll link to in the show notes as we usually do. Yes, and Jill actually gave a talk as well called Changing the Data Science Culture for Veterinary Scientists, which was a really cool talk, a really nice Quarto presentation that you can find online. We'll link to that as well. But I, I think if you are in one of those those scientific domains, uh, and this interestingly veterinary science, which I haven't seen a ton of data science content around, uh, this is one that you're definitely going to want to check out. It was really, really cool talk. I, I think even regardless of what domain you're in, it's a really cool talk about uh, culture and bringing data science culture into a domain that, that maybe wasn't necessarily used to some of those best practices. Yeah, it was an excellent presentation. I'll be sure to watch a recording of that. But again, it's great that Posit gives gives that virtual option as well for those that couldn't make the trip, in her case, from overseas. So we, we definitely understand. But yeah, it was a fantastic talk and fantastic slide deck. It looks like it was written in quarto, of course, like the majority of the presentations we saw there. And did I say slides, Mike? Because um, get ready for another mind-blowing moment in the world of slide creation in R, because our next highlight, guess who's back? Ihuizia, the architect of everything R Markdown and, and Knitter. He is now going to blow our minds yet again with another pretty wicked combo, if I say so myself, a CSS and JavaScript to supercharge your HTML documents into a new type of slide. Now, we are both familiar, and many of you listening hopefully are familiar with the excellent HTML slide formats that are already offered by, say, the R Markdown package and Ehue's own Sharingan package using Reveal J- or Remark.js and, of course, Reveal.js that comes from Cordo itself. Now, many of these formats help you convert, say, the Markdown text that you write into slides, but in between that conversion, I left out a middle step which is when it gets converted to HTML. And then that is being you know, processed by either Pandoc or other mechanisms to get your fancy HTML version of the slides. Well, Eways discovered the scroll snap technique in CSS, which lets you define positions in your HTML document to quickly, literally snap to, pl- to focus in your, in your web browser as the user is scrolling down your HTML document. Well, snap into it! Now, I remember having a similar go at this um, with using one of John Cooten's packages called Full Page inside a Shiny app, which was part of my posters um, session at a, at a um, Studio Conf 2020. And I was it was pretty good, but it had a little mix and quirks here and there. But what Eway's done, of course, he's always very humble. Just create a small set of CSS and JavaScript that will literally bolt on the classes that are needed to change your HTML document into this scroll snap functionality. And you as the end user can still write your slides in Markdown by having your slides separated by a level two heading or a horizontal rule or whatever have you. 
but it's going to be very familiar if you're in that existing workflow and other presentation, you know, frameworks. And where is this built, you might ask? Not our markdown, not Knitter, not Quarto. It's in the markdown package. This is the OG, if you will, of HTML to markdown conversion in R. It is now a set of built-in scripts in the markdown package. We're now being in there. As long as you have that package installed, you can now bolt on this snap scrolling functionality into your HTML documents that are from our markdown, markdown itself, and yes, even Quarto. All you have to do is inject a little bit in the header of each of those, and he's got code in the blog post that does exactly that. So this looks pretty intriguing to me. I haven't played with it myself yet, but if he wants to spend the time on that, it's definitely worth a look from, from my standpoint. So if you're looking for a way to have a minimalist way to create an engaging you know, presentation-like experience for your HTML docs, it looks like this snap scrolling might be a great way to do that. So again, eWay never ceases to amaze me. So I'll be trying this out probably for my next uh, presentation at work. Who knows? Step into a Slim Jim. Yeah, so I really enjoyed this blog post. It's always great to see what eWay puts together. It usually is mind-blowing in some respect, and I guess this is certainly no, uh, this this is not any different than the typical eWay blog post because this sort of came out of nowhere uh, for me. You know, we've been sort of uh, really deep in Quarto and all of the new features that continue to come out in the Quarto ecosystem. Uh, so this sort of slides framework is is really interesting to me. And, you know, one of the things that I think makes it unique and I guess makes it lightweight, to me, it almost feels like a PDF on steroids in some ways because you're not uh, you're not going to the next slide through like the left or right arrows on your keyboard at all. You're, you're going to the next slide just by scrolling down on the page. And you can do some things like if you just scroll slightly, it'll, it'll sort of jump to the next block of content, which is, is really nice. So I, I think it's another really good option that we have out there for authoring, you know, educational content probably in, in presentation ready slides, if you will, in this very vertical framework as opposed to a horizontal type of feel that we get in Quarto. Although, uh, one thing that we saw in a lot of Quarto slides during the conference was the ability to not only scroll right or left, but also to scroll up and down. So you, yes. you have this sort of bi-directional way to present your content, which was wild to me. It's not something that I've tried yet, but uh, that was something that David Grangen employed in, in his slides, which was, which was pretty cool. Cool. So I think this is obviously you know a, a much lighter weight uh, way to present content like that than going full quarto. So it, it might be interesting to some folks who are just trying to spin up some slides quickly for presentation purposes. And, and there's some really interesting things in, in, in here. Uh, you know, obviously the ability to, to sort of just embed raw HTML and CSS, but also uh, you know sort of fade your content as well. He has some buttons in here when he's describing, you know, how to go full screen or how to uh, mirror your content. And when I hover over these these images of these buttons on my mouse with my mouse, they 
are sort of interactive. They jump up and down, which is really, really cool. So I don't know if that's something that Eway uh, custom rolled for this particular set of slides or if this is something that comes uh, off the shelf with this JavaScript framework, um, but it's, it's always cool to have another sort of tool in our toolkit for creating interactive uh, HTML style presentations. Yeah, and in the rest of this blog post, he talks about a bit of motivation behind this, and he was looking for this kind of middle ground of being pretty minimalist in terms of the CSS and JavaScript that are ejecting in. He he he's a big fan of what he did with Remark JS with sharing, and, and many of us were we were early adopters of that back in back in the day, as they say. But he did have a little bit of qualms. It sounds like about the heavy footprint that that puts onto the dependencies of it. So this is quite minimal compared to other uh, frameworks out there. But yeah, I think this is this is very much an attractive option to kind of have that in between of that presentation-like experience, but then have a comprehensive HTML report where maybe some pages have way more detail than you can scroll as you normally would. And then when you have like the high-level bullets or, you know, that fancy image, you can quickly snap right to it. It is it is very elegant. And the fact that I, I love that there's still some attention being paid to, you know, I, I have great respect for the markdown package itself. That's what started a lot of these initiatives and it never went away. It's just, it does its job so well, it almost seems invisible to you as a, as an end user, because you're thinking quarter, you're thinking our markdown, but no, this was built somewhere folks. And I remember in the day when this first came out, I was like, what is this thing called markdown? And sure enough, here we are today. So Great time to be authoring scientific documents and yes, presentations in, in Markdown. And it's going to make it even harder for me when I have to do PowerPoint in the future. I will miss this terribly. <laughs> you and me both know it's, yeah, I think the best tools are the ones where it's almost so obvious or, or, or so concealed that it's, it's, doing exactly what it needs to do that you don't even think about it and markdown is one of those packages that just works and you know what else requires a lot of thinking sometimes mike and that is setting up your reproducible analysis pipeline sometimes with certain tech involved but Guess who's back to have yet another installment in his journey with using Nix to produce reproducible analysis pipelines. That is Bruno Rodriguez, of course. We are back to feature him with part six of his blog series. And this is getting to a very important issue that I always had in the back of my mind as he was, you know, you know, speaking the virtues of Nix and Nix OS on his data analysis pipelines. And that is going from your machine into a CI/CD framework. Now, for those that may have done CI/CD in the past, you probably have been leveraging that conveniently through a service called GitHub Actions, which is great if, say, you're building an R package and you want to quickly run some additional tests when you push to your main branch, or you get a pull request, making sure that the end that the person sending the pull request, you know. Did their, did, their, did their work, so to speak, and there are no errors involved, so you can quickly get that check run automatically. Well, under the hood, that's all running Docker stuff under the hood. So the natural question is, well, if Bruno and others are building these really top-notch pipelines on their local machines with Nick's 
package management at the at the foundation of it, how can you leverage that in CI/CD? Well, this post is trying to illustrate that it's literally, again, I'm being a little bit you know brief here. It is literally just making sure that the Next package manager is installed on those GitHub action runners, which again are under the hood Docker containers, but there are actions to get the Next package system onto that container. And then you can install those same set of packages that you have in your local Nix powered analytical pipeline using, you know, the, the recommended hash that mirrors your particular project's hash on the Nix package manager system. And then you can have, for all intents and purposes, for that analysis itself, a bit for bit reproducible environment for that project. That is massive because sometimes, even though we might use Docker on our local machine to do, say, a reproducible environment, and we throw an RM on that for package management, when you get to that GitHub action, that might be a different version of that operating system under the hood. You may not realize it might be maybe an older version of Ubuntu or something like that. The Nix package manager will not care about that. As long as you can get that Nix package manager on that container, you are off to the races. Now, I won't pretend that this YAML, that um, the workflow YAML file that Bruno set up is very small, but you know what Bruno's doing here. He's leveraging Will Landau's targets package as part of this reproducible pipeline, which again, speaks to my heart a little bit because targets is such a fundamental part of what I do at the day job. But this is a great way to show you've been running targets locally and you want to have that CICD pipeline and GitHub actions, but still take advantage of what Nix offers from a reproducibility standpoint, this blog post will literally get you there the whole way. It is a very well-articulated example. It is very powerful. He is still amazed by this. I'm still amazed by this. And yes, I joked about this earlier, but now that the workshop's done, (laughs) next month, I'm starting my next journey. You heard it here first, and we'll see what happens. But this six-part series is worth the price of a mission, which by the way is free. It's all very online, of course, but what Bruno's outline here is just fantastic. And I'm going to be looking at this very carefully as I start to start my next journey with my R development adventures. I'm excited to watch your next journey, your shiny live journey and your object oriented programming journeys all uh, continue to, to run in parallel seamlessly. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's how the, how's how we spell it out, but whatever that happens. Yeah. That's anybody's guess. <laughs> yes. No, this is, uh, this is, you know, a, another great blog post from Bruno's sort of uh, long form tutorial into getting started with Nix and, and leveraging Nix as really that in full environment management uh, tool for you to have. And, and one of my th- one of my favorite things uh, about his blog post, like you mentioned, Eric, is this it's this very long GitHub action, but it's it's super informative, and it, it just reminds me of reading uh, the the data science at the command line book because there is a, a ton of command line calls here uh, that are necessary like he, he's he's running for loops within a github action and that's stuff that I, I haven't necessarily seen a lot of before so it's it's very impressive that he gets this 
all to fit together. And, and like you said, his use of the targets package, I think it is pretty instrumental here in accomplishing his goal of, I believe, uh, running some type of model and, and getting the results, uh, leveraging tidy models, vetiver, uh, targets, and XG boost. So, you know, he certainly argues that, that the Knicks framework here is a little less overhead than what you would need for for docker and rn i think really you know what he's taking out of the equation here in a lot of aspects is rn you know you're still using docker in in some respect when you're running a github action as you said but just essentially um passing that that nick's hash that represents your environment to that docker uh container that that's that's running during that github action so, you know, I think a little lighter weight, it's, it's again, really cool to see Bruno continue to teach us about this next tool. And, and he articulates again that it's something that he thinks is, is really underrepresented and really not talked about as much as it needs to be talked about. So he's on his crusade to educate us uh, about Nix and, and I'm all for it. I am very interested to see what he continues to put together uh, in regards to teaching us about the Nix ecosystem and how it compares and contrasts to what we currently do uh, in, in Docker and our dev container environments that we're doing locally and how this might be able to speed up some of those uh, development processes for us and ensure that whatever we throw over uh, the wall, so to speak, in, in terms of our, our final uh, environment works uh, wherever it's getting used in, in production. So this is a great, I'm not sure if this is the conclusion or not, but it's a great latest blog post in the series of, I guess it's six at this point, uh, blog posts around Nick that, Nick's that, that Bruno has authored. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting given the fact that he has recently authored uh, a book that's available on Amazon around reproducible data science pipelines uh, that doesn't include Nick's, I don't think, or if it does, you know, maybe it, it just uh, briefly mentions it because as Bruno says, you know, it's a uh, crusade, if you will, that he's he's only recently undertaken and recently learned about. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a new version of his book that comes out that sort of scraps the uh, Docker and RN components for, for Nick. So it would be interesting to see uh, how he revises that book in the future, if at all. I was going to say, these six blog posts just on its own could be another book in, in their entirety. Yes. But I, I dare say if, if um, Bruno's thinking about a second edition, yeah, I think this could be, you know, very, very helpful material. And again, there, there are multiple ways to, you know, deal with reproducibility here. I think what Bruno's outlined here from start to whether this is the finish or not, or this is just a continuing journey. There's a lot of compelling, compelling ideas here. I used to think Nix was just more for the, uh, the Linux enthusiasts. I just wanted to kind of a automated way of configuring their system, so to speak, you know, this version of VS code or this version of such and such dependency. It has such great relations to data science. I think this is, this is the part that is the aha moment for me. And I'm going to be taking advantage of a couple, you know, connections I have in the Linux space to get some help along the way if I want to push this envelope further. And yes, I even learned that my fancy schmancy streaming setup with OBS could be running Nick so well as well. So, geez, what's what's the limit, Mike? There's no limit here. No, like you said, you know this this Nick's this Nick's thing might be uh, might be pretty interesting for a lot of use cases.
No, I wish there was a. We lived in a world of no limits, but you know, Mike. Sometimes speaking of performance and upping the ante a bit, you know, sometimes we've got to we got to account for limits and see what we can do to leverage the resources we have. And our last highlight does just that with a prediction-like pipeline, but in the context of spatial data as well. And our last highlight comes from Christoph Diva, who is a PhD student at Adam Mickiewicz University, talking about how he has gotten been able to leverage a little bit of parallel processing to um, analyze in a prediction model setting spatial data coming from satellite images. Now, this is pretty neat. I haven't seen this kind of domain, you know, used in the prediction pipeline before. But again, you're talking to a complete novice of spatial data. But this blog post leads off with downloading the Landsat 8 satellite image files, which are mainly consisting of these large TIF extension images, and then leveraging a few packages along the way to deal with the, the I guess, the size of the data in question. In particular, the star package, great name, of course, where it is able to load, in essence, the metadata behind these image files as proxy objects, which from my shiny devs skills, that reminds me of something I use routinely to update something from a client side. But this is a way that these image files won't take up all of ours memory when you load them in and get just the metadata associated with it. And then once those are loaded into into this proxy setup, he then starts setting up further predictions by forming, as we see in a lot of classical machine learning prediction pipelines, forming the training set. And this is based on random samples of that satellite image data. Again, using functions provided by looks like the star package again, not too dissimilar to what you might see in tidy models where it helps you, you know, assemble that training set either for subsampling or bootstrapping and whatnot. Looks like they have equivalents in this uh, star package as well. Now, once he's massaged that into a series of, I guess you might call tiles in this matrix-like layout, this is where things could be done either in a single kind of one-by-one setup with each of these partitions of this spatial matrix going through one-by-one all those tiles and then running your prediction and then getting out the image file of that prediction, saving it to disk. Why not do multiple processes? Each of those tiles, if you are independent of each other, so throw that across your CPU cores, right? In this, he's leveraging the for each package with the do parallel um, sub package as a way I've seen this many years um, in other pipelines to set up that parallel backend, making the decoration for a number of cores, and then once you have that, you're able to throw this into a for each loop instead of the for loop that he had in the sequential version. And sure enough, that did speed up operation by quite a bit. In fact, he says it cut the execution time by half of this setup, which again, huge gains without him needing an HPC cluster on the back end. He just did it on his own machine. All these machines, if you have a semi-modern you know, laptop or desktop, you're going to have definitely probably four cores or more to throw at problems like this. So again, great way to take advantage of what you have in a parallel fashion to speed up your processing, read all those predicted images in, and then do a nice plot at the end that shows some really fancy um, terrain associated that was predicted out of these uh, satellite images. 
So again, out of my particular domain, but it's great to see the prediction pipelines with a, a hint of performance boosting seen in the spatial data landscape. Yes, I agree. This is a really cool, uh, really cool blog post. I looked into the uh, the, the stars package in particular, and it looks like there is a book that sort of corresponds to uh, the, the star package. And it, it also looks like it, it corresponds to the domain where this blog post was written. It's, it's rspatial.org slash book. Um, and there it's a book, a book down book uh, authored. It's called Spatial Data Science. And chapter seven of that book has an introduction to SF and stars. So if you're looking for a longer form introduction to the stars package and how well it works with geospatial data, that might be a good place to start after taking a look at, at this blog post by Christoph. So, um, you know, I'm always super interested in parallel processing, right, and seeing what we can do just on our own machine, right, in terms of uh, the, the the power and the performance that we can generate by using tools and tips and tricks uh, like like what the Star Stars package offers us, uh, and, and through parallel processing, leveraging multiple cores of our, our machine simultaneously. Because for me, in most most of my use cases that I've found, we can leverage the, these tips and tricks and, and 95% of the time keep uh, the work on our own laptop and, and not have to push it out to some external service that has maybe more compute or more memory on it. And, and this also reminds me of the uh, the Geo Aero project that's going on right now, which sort of brings a lot of the gains in efficiency that we get uh, from the, the arrow format and, and the parquet file format um, to geospatial data as well. And I think there was just a big 1.0.0 release that we can link to in the show notes of the GeoParquet project. Um, and I, I think, you know, the combination of the, these tools that we now have available for, for geospatial data science really enable us to do some of this, this large processing of geospatial data on our own machine in a way that we definitely weren't able to do in years past because of the, the, the size and the weight of geospatial data itself. Um, I think there were like 62 million pixels that were being analyzed in Christoph's blog post. Um, so, so that's an, an incredible size uh, in terms of, of data that he is able to process uh, on his own machine. So excellent blog post, a great way to round out the highlights this week. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's great to see these milestones achieved in, in the in the back end packages that are going to make all of this possible. You know what else can supercharge the rest of this R Weekly issue, right? I mean, we've had a supersized edition in this recording, so we're not going to talk about additional finds, but you can find everything that we talk to at rweekly.org. Um, everything is right there. All the roundup of great blog posts, and I'm sure we're going to see trickle in more great PositConf wrap-up posts as well. Um, I may even get my hand on that sooner or later as well. Um, but it was, and again, shout out to all of you that said hi to us in Chicago that were big fans of the podcast. That was extremely gratifying to hear. We're happy to see, happy to connect with all of you. And yeah, look forward to hopefully being there again next year as well. But in terms of where you can find us, I am on Mastodon. I am at our podcast at podcastindex.social. I also do cross posting on that thing that used to be Twitter and that thing called LinkedIn as well. And uh, you might hear my voice on another podcast in the coming weeks. Uh, stay tuned more for that later. But, uh, Mike, where can the listeners find you? Likewise, at, at Mastodon, uh, at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. 
Awesome stuff. And we'll wrap up here, but it's great to be back on the saddle, so to speak. And we will be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.